Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. In this episode, I talk to international best-selling author Robert Greene about strategy, seduction, and the sublime. Robert implores us to get comfortable with the dark side of human nature and society. He argues that by acknowledging the reality of human interactions, we can use certain strategies to help us effectively navigate the workplace, our relationships, and daily life. We also touch on the topics of empathy, imagination, charisma, power, and his upcoming book on transcendence and the sublime. Chatting with Robert is always such a delight, as we have many mutual areas of interest. I have been a longtime admirer of his books, and I remember reading them in college and thinking that he seems to just get it. I hope you enjoyed this high-level discussion as much as I did. So without further ado, I bring you Robert Green. Robert, it's so great to talk to you today on the Psychology Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me again on your show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you've been on three times now. Uh, three one times. of the records. And, uh, really? Yeah. Well, I'm honored. A, yeah, I think this is your third I'm appearance. Well, no, I'm honored. You're a veteran. That's right. That's right. Well, first of all, I want to just start off by saying my sincerest condolences on the passing of Brutus. Oh, my God. You, well, um, when I heard about exactly, that, it made me really sad. That was exactly two years ago. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you never met him, but he was the most amazing cat. And mm. he had been with me, well, he, he was 19 years old when he passed away. So he had been my constant companion through the writing of five books, you know, seeing him day in and day out in the backyard and everything, and just kind of keeping me company. I don't know, the attachment that you get to an animal is just hard to explain to people who don't understand it, but but I had such a deep, deep attachment to him. So it was very painful. I know. I know. So my, my sincerest condolences. And how are you doing? Uh, how's your health? Well, my health is good. I mean, I can't really complain. It's just since I had my stroke three years ago and 
I'm st- I'm not where I thought I would be. I thought I'd be much further along. So I've had to deal with some of my own impatience and some of my own limitations because I still can't like take a walk anywhere, you know, I'm kind of limited in that. And it's very, mm-hmm. very difficult to, to deal with things that you can't really change or control. I do a lot of therapy and there's hope, but I'm just dying to be like having my old life again, where I swam and hiked and stuff. And actually, to be honest, I don't know if I will get it back or if I'll get enough back that I can. Yeah. They, that's what the doctors have said. They thought I'd have a full recovery. So, you know, that's what, but it might take like four more years or something. So instead, well, not instead, but uh, you can fill a lot of that time writing really influential books that changed the world. So that's good. That's for right. Us. The one compensation, it didn't affect my brain as far as I know. Right. So uh, I can keep writing mm. books. That is one good thing because some people have strokes and it mostly affects the brain and your cognitive abilities. So I'm very grateful that it affected the other side. So Yeah. Well, uh, congratulations on your new book, The Daily Laws. It's a bit of a, what is it, uh, a smorgasbord, like, like your greatest hits in a way. Um, well, I'm trying to think of the best metaphor here to describe it. How would you yeah, describe some it? People, some people say that it is kind of a choice of, of some of the what I consider the most salient parts of the book, but it does have a logic and a structure, unlike a kind of a greatest hits album. You know, it has a, a linear plot mm-hmm. that goes through it where I'm sort of instructing you on various phases of, of my philosophy, you know, and each month has a kind of a theme to it. And then there's some original material in it. Um, each month is introduced by an essay of dealing with my own life and how that informed my books. And then the last month, there's some um, passages from my new book. So there is some original material in there. Yeah, and I can't wait to get to the topic of your new book. And that's so well aligned with so many things I'm obsessed with these days. But let's go in order. In a way, not, not that like there's a necessary an order, but uh, let's to, let's cover some other topics first. And I want to start at this very kind of general level of this thread that runs through all of your writings, which is this connection to reality. This idea: what is a radical realist, which is a term that you use? Well, you know, you, there's a degree of connection to what's really going on in the world, and we're never going to completely connect to it. I mean, in a kind of a Zen Buddhist way, that's sort of the goal of enlightenment, where you have a complete grasp of what the world actually is, right? But for those of us who haven't reached that that state of enlightenment, it's a matter of degree. And I'd like to think of it in, in, in three parts. The first part is about yourself, knowing who you are. And we live with a lot of illusions and delusions about who we are. You know, we're not really connected to what really motivates our, our desires, our behavior. We kind of exist in this fog. And if you think about it, it's, it's actually quite startling and frightening at the same time when you realize that so many of your thoughts and your emotions and your behavior, you're not really conscious of, right? You don't really know where it comes from. Deep down inside the roots of it, why you react certain ways so much of our behavior is kind of on an automatic level. And so we have this sort of robotic double that does most of our actions during our, our life, right? So a radical realist applies that light, that illumination 
on oneself, on, on one's early childhood, on one's attachments early on in life, on um, what one loves, on what one hates. You're a big uh, follower of Maslow, and I always got very excited by an expression he had, which was called impulse voices. Impulse voices are what an infant of one year old or younger has that kind of directs him or her to certain objects and food that he or she likes that are so powerful that it, it can only be something perhaps genetic that comes from deep, deep inside. So we kind of lose, as we get older, we lose connection to those impulse voices, to what really is who we are as opposed to the social persona that we assume. So a radical realist has an ability to look deep inside and become more aware of who, who one is. Of course, you can never really know. Maybe we can only know 10% of who we are, but that 10% is greater than most people have, and it's powerful. The other side is understanding people, which is extremely important because we're such a deep social animal. And once again, we're operating in this deep, deep fogs. We're constantly listening to this kind of tape rolling around in our heads. We're not really getting inside people. We don't really know what motivates them, what their world is, what their experience is. We, we project onto them our own emotions, our own fantasies, etc. So we don't really have a clue as to, you know, this extremely critical part of our lives. Even, even our intimate partners, we don't truly understand. And it's getting worse and worse and worse, I think, as people, as studies have shown that we're all becoming more narcissistic, more self-absorbed. You know, I, I read novels from like the 19th century, like Jane Austen, or I'm reading a lot now by Virginia Woolf, and I'm shocked mm -hmm. at the level of understanding of people and people's psychology. Like they're constantly having parties, interactions. Their life was so much more social than ours was, right? Because they had no other form of entertainment. They had no internet, no television, Radio may have just been beginning. Their only form of entertainment was interacting with people. So they had a much deeper grasp and connection to the people around them, a kind of high-level empathy that I think is getting degraded. So that a radical realist will never truly understand. I can't understand what Scott Barry Kaufman is thinking right now, but I can get a little bit in tune with your moods and your emotions and how you're feeling. And to that degree that I can get that kind of inside out perspective on you, you know, get in the theory of mind, get inside your mind and how it operates. You know, I have a greater connection to the reality of what makes you tick. And then finally, the, the radical realist is connected to the zeitgeist, to what's going on in the world, to an understanding of the historical social moment that we're going through to a degree that's possible, you know, we can never have perfect clarity there. But you add those three realms, if you're able to increase the sense of clarity you have about those those various aspects, that's sort of what makes, to me, a radical realist. Thanks. Yeah, I really love that. And I completely agree with you about uh, increasing problem. The, a lot of what you describe, um, I know that you put the label empathy on it. 
And uh, your idea of empathy is it's very clear that it's about perspective taking and getting really inside someone else's mind and being able to see what makes them tick, like you say. I know we've discussed this before. Some other people in the psychological literature view empathy more as like mirror neuron, mere emotional sharing of emotions and feelings. But it does sound like you have a bit of a different conceptualization of empathy. Is that right? No, I, I, I agree that it's mostly on the level of emotions. I, I consider it a kind of a visceral thing. Some people have criticized empathy as a more kind of abstract process where you're sort of trying to figure out mind read the other person and the limitations of that, right? But I'm trying to say that we have like a kind of a visceral connection to other people. I mean, the books that I've read and people who speculate about our earliest ancestors, I think we were, had almost a telepathic feel for what people were, for their moods, their emotions, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, even before the invention of language, that we have this capacity that is kind of like an instrument that we don't really use very much because we don't practice with it. But that's the, my sense of empathy, because sometimes I have this feeling that I really I'm almost can be inside the skin of another person right? And I can't put it into words. It's something I talk about in my Sublime book. You can't really put it into words. You can't create a formula for it. And a lot of people in psychology are all into formulas and, you know, kind of ways of describing things that are precise because you're so obsessed with science right now to a degree that I find kind of nauseating, to be honest with you. Whereas this kind of visceral sort of feeling that you have this connection that can't be quantified, I'm sorry to say, is to me the essence Mm. of our social nature. And, you know, that's sort of my concept of empathy. Yeah, I hear you. Um, I mean, I think a useful distinction in in my field is between affective empathy and cognitive empathy, because they do split apart. I mean, you do have some people with deficits in affective empathy who have great cognitive empathy they use to manipulate people um, solely as their, their purpose and you have those that have the reverse. A lot of people with autism on the autism spectrum have the affect of empathy, but they have great difficulty with cognitive empathy. So sometimes those distinctions that nauseate you are actually useful. Well, I don't find the distinctions nauseating. I just find trying to debunk. I've read articles where people try to debunk the concept of empathy itself, saying that there's oh, no wow. evidence. Like uh, Paul Bloom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Paul, right. Paul Bloom's argument against empathy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He argues for rational compassion. Yeah, the idea of rational. Actually, his episode on my podcast will be coming out right, right by yours. So, oh, well, a good contrast. Well, <laughs> so it'll be, it'll be fun to have that juxtaposition. Yeah. I think we live in times that are over-intellectualized. It's sort of a lot of the theme of my new book, right? That we, we're, mm. we're, We've become so abstract that we're losing a lot of what makes us deeply human, right? So... The kind of mm-hmm. computer metaphor that the mind now, people now associate with the mind, you know, as if it's this data processing instrument, as opposed to what how, you know, I would look at the mind a lot differently. And that there are things about consciousness that we'll never be able to know, that we'll never be able to scientifically describe, you know, things that are kind of a realm that's, I hate to say it, will always remain mysterious, that we can't really figure out empirically. And empathy, when you think of it only in this kind of intellectual abstract realm, it can seem like something that has limitations. You don't understand it. 
But I, I know from my own experience, from a lot of things that I've read and from what my connection to other people and what I read of a lot of history, et cetera, that there is something else to it that a lot of people have a hard time actually describing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, another major theme, you know, because I want to start, I want to actually try to ask you some high level questions because I'm sure that you have been Uh-oh. saying the same thing over and over and over again in, in interview after interview after interview. So yeah, I have, hopefully I, have. I can, we can have a little more of a, you know, and I really respect that. So I want to have a little bit of a higher level discussion. So another uh, area of um, commonality that I notice uh, in your writing is, especially when it comes to things like seduction and strategy, is actually using imagination as a tool for manipulation. You know, keeping people unpredictable, playing to their senses, looking fantastical, these sorts of things. So I wanted to discuss, someone might think, well, that seems at odds with your idea of the reality principle. I don't see it as odds, but I'm saying um, I thought we could have a discussion about how we can kind of integrate these two major themes that do run through. On the one hand, it's really important for you to be connected to reality as clearly as possible. But on the other hand, um, a lot of people have used imagination as a as a tool for strategy, as a tool for seduction, et cetera. Well, that's, that's a, that is a high-level question you're getting at here. That's where I wanted to do with you today. <laughs> okay. A person, their psychology and their desire for fantasy, which we all have, we all want to be taken outside of our world, our narrow little world, and we want to be engaged with something larger than life, mythic, however you want to describe it, is something that's deeply rooted in human psychology, right? Understanding that is part of being a radical realist. I understand that I myself have a tremendous need for things that aren't necessarily hardcore realism. I I need like theater. I'm obsessed with theater. I love drama. I like films. I like reading fiction. Okay, a work of fiction, to, to use this as a prototype, is complete work of imagination, right? To re- to actually get through seven volumes of Proust, which is an exhausting thing, which I did years ago. Nice. You know, you're dealt, you're, you're absorbed into this insane microcosm that he actually, this world that he creates of all these characters. But there is no greater psychologist than Marcel Proust, in my opinion, on an inc- incredible mm-hmm. level or someone like a Virginia Woolf. And they're getting at the reality of people through the device of fiction, okay? But the other thing is, understanding human nature is to me part of that aspect of understanding yourself and other people, right? And we all have the desire, I believe, to be seduced in some way. And that can go back from to our early relationships with our parents, to our siblings, et cetera whatever the roots of that might be. We want to feel deep down inside that there is a vulnerability to us and that somebody else almost kind of inhabits our being in a way. It goes back to, I think, something in the relationship with one's mother, etc. So I think we want to, all of us have a drive to be taken out of our little interior prisons and be drawn out into the world of someone else. To falling in love with another person, it makes us vulnerable to a piece of fiction that takes us on a journey. It can be negative thing, but makes us vulnerable to a demagogic politician, for instance, to just mm-hmm. getting outside of ourselves in some way, to transcending our limits, to look at the title of your book there a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of that involves 
use of fantasy, et cetera. But the other side of it this that interests me is that, you know, people like to contrast what I write in my books with being authentic. And they say, Robert, you're kind of advocating a kind of inauthenticity about people where it's a lot, it's just, you're talking about deception and manipulation, et cetera. And I'm kind of come from a different angle or a different perspective. I'm very much influenced by the writer Irving Goffman. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Yeah, and Goffman's yeah. approach is that we humans are continually acting in our daily lives. We are never really completely, truly authentic. It's part of being a social animal. So when we assume a certain role, a certain position in, in, in a job or whatever, we have to assume that role. We're, we become an actor. And then when we go home and we're dealing with our spouse or our children, we wear a different mask. We act in a different way. But this act, this idea of our being an actor and play acting is suffused throughout our daily life. And if you look at children, children learn at a very early age how to be highly manipulative. They know how to manipulate their parents to use their smiles, to use their tears, to get, ex to get what they want. And the psychologist that I, I admire a lot, Milton Erickson, he was very attuned to this kind of manipulative side comes out in humans at a very, very early age. And we are deeply, deeply uncomfortable with that side of our nature. We want to deny it to as much as we can. We want to act as if this is not part of our reality, right? And I think that this, this play acting, this acting part of our nature is deeply ingrained, but we're not comfortable with it. So we want to assume that, that there's some other ideal for us. And all I'm trying to say is, let's, let's be a little more comfortable with human nature, with the fact that etiquette, which we all believe in, is a form of continual daily deception. It's a continual stream of white lies that we tell people when we compliment them, when we say we love their screenplay, when we think they're looking great. You know, if we weren't using etiquette in this way, you know, we wouldn't be able to get along. And it is a form of deception. It's not high-level manipulation, don't get me wrong at any point. But this aspect of our daily lives that um, make us be somewhat a little bit false in our interactions, we want to imagine that this is not part of our reality, that we're in fact these kind of Gandhi-esque figures that are, you know, truly noble and have this ideal of being authentic. And I just want to say that let's let's be a little more comfortable with this darker side of human nature. I'm not really sure I'm answering your no, original I, question, I, Scott, because yeah. it was so long ago. But well, okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, I'm I'm still I appreciate your point, and I, I just want to, for the sake of conversation, just keep pushing this so we get really, really deep into this. There is such a thing as surely lying, and there's such a thing as surely telling the truth about yourself. Yes. It seems like on the one hand, you extol the merits of reality and truth-telling and really seeing things for what they are. But then the other hand, you give a lot of advice for well, how we need to deceive. You do lots of things to put up smoke and mirrors in order to get what we want. Um, don't fully tell people how great you are. Don't. I mean, there's a million things you talk about. So there's a one hand and another hand here. And how can a deep integration of those two, what does that look like? Well, I don't really know what you mean about me believing in truth telling. 
So a lot of the 48 laws of power, which people misinterpret, is I come more from the side of the the victim, of the innocent side in the equation, which was who I was when Mm -hmm. I entered the work world at the age of 22 after graduating university. And suddenly I became exposed to all these high-level political games, the kind of manipulative things that go on in the work world. It's not the complete picture, don't get me wrong, but there's definitely that aspect that we that we're all kind of shocked by when we, you know, when we enter the work world after being somewhat naive and innocent. So I wanted to expose the reader to the kinds of things that go on in this environment that are not discussed. They're not discussed in self-help books. There's not things that your parents talk about. It's not something you learned in university. The political aspect of human nature, where people's egos are involved, right? So if you're learning to never outshine the master, that you don't want to get fired for trying too hard and making the person above you feel insecure about their position in life, that is the reality of human nature. That is the reality that people above you have egos, that they're insecure, and you have to acknowledge that. And that's the truth about that situation and that relationship. I'm not saying that you may have a boss where it's fine not to, to outshine him or her. It's, you know, I'm not saying it's always the case, right? But in, I know so many people, including myself, who have suffered deeply from being fired and not understanding why I was fired. And if you examine the roots of it, it was this very kind of dynamic of outshine the master that was at the root of it. So, you know, get others to do the work, but always take the credit, which is a pretty nasty manipulative law in the 48 Laws of Power. I quite honestly, I have many different markers in that chapter that make it clear that I'm talking about you, the person who's going to be the victim of that, like I was the victim of that. And to be aware that other people are going to get you to do the work and they're going to put their name on it and to not get defensive or upset that it's just part of it and how, how to handle those kinds of situations, right? So, and then I talk about how in our culture, there are a lot of con artists in, in our midst, in politics, in business. You know, one thing that's very rarely covered is how much deception and manipulation go on in a very micro day-to-day level in the business world, in advertising, in marketing. It's a constant game of creating smoke screens, of creating this image that you want other people to believe in, right? So I want you to be aware of these dynamics and how they occur. And that's part of being a radical realist. I don't know how else to explain it. That is the reality that we have to deal with. Now, is there a role? Is there an important to tell people the truth? Obviously, yes, particularly in your intimate relationships, which I'm not covering in my books on that level, right? I mean, I know in seduction, that's different. So I I am contradicting myself a little bit here. But, you know, dealing with your spouse or dealing with your your intimate partner or your children, yes, truth-telling is extremely valuable, right? And even in the work world, Mm. there's a a role for it, okay? And, you know, I've discussed Mm -hmm. that a little bit in my books. But mostly, a lot of the times, we do have to wear a mask when we enter that world, right? And we can't be completely mm-hmm. honest. We have to kind of be continually aware of people's egos, their insecurities, and how we have to mold our actions, our behavior, our words to who that person is. So once again, I'm not quite sure if I'm answering your question, but I'm trying to. <laughs> 
No, well, you're. This is good. I mean, this is good. I really like um, to hear further clarification from you. You know, there is there are two sides of the story. There's you can learn about the reality of the matter so that you don't get duped or taken in, and then you can also look at the reality of the matter and use that tactically as a way to get what you want out of life. Now, that's not always necessarily a bad thing, as you point out, to do that to do the latter. Sometimes it is a bad thing, but it's not always a bad thing. But I think you flip back and forth between the two. You know, it's not always so clear to me when you're in one mode or the other, you know, of like, be wary of this. And then sometimes it does come across as advice on what to do. So do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but, uh, you know, Scott, I'm a believer in specificity. So it's very hard to argue this in the abstract. So you point to me a chapter, a passage that you find is ambiguous, and I'll clarify for you. I'd be happy to. But to discuss this abstractly about all seven of my books, it's very difficult for me. I hope you can understand Mm -hmm. that. Fair enough. So let's go through some specific ones. So poeticize your presence. Never be ordinary or limited. In poetry as opposed to reality, anything is possible. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that one? Well, that's in the art of seduction, right? So it's specific about Mm -hmm. the seduction Mm -hmm. process, okay? And, Mm -hmm. you know, in seduction, I think that there's an element of theater and drama. It is what excites us about it. It's like a mating ritual in a way right, in which we go through these kind of prescribed forms of behavior, etc. And one of the things about us humans and about love and even our sexual desires is it's deeply embedded in our psychology, right? It's not just this animal drive where we want sex, etc. There's, there's a lot of psychology involved. And one of the things is in a seduction, in that kind of a, a area of our life, We want to be taken out of the banality of our day-to-day world. That is sort of the essence of seduction, where you create almost a kind of theater in daily life, right? And you're making the other person enter this realm of, quite frankly, a bit of illusion, like as on a stage, as in a theater or as in a film, right? So you're giving people the sense that when they're around you, that there's something more than just what they see. There's something exciting. There's something larger than life. You're kind of poeticizing your presence. This could mean in the kind of objects that surround you, in the way that you dress, in the way that you talk. And, you know, in in a seduction setting, when you're trying to make that other person be interested in you or fall in love with you, right, you normally naturally kind of go through this process. You don't normally wear the clothes that you ought normally would would wear you don't you know wear your sloppy jeans or your t-shirt um you uh, although that might be changing now i don't know you tend to dress a little differently to kind of impress the other person you don't just take them to the local pizza hut you know to have your meal you take them to a, a restaurant that you think you so you try and create this this aspect of theater in in your daily life and we don't get enough of that in our world because you know, it's sort of an aspect that used to be in our social interactions, where we used to being in at a party or being in, with people, there was a kind of this heightened aspect of it, the sense of being drawn out of yourself, this kind of Durkheim sense of being in a crowd and being involved in this kind of large, this sort of collective consciousness of, and, you know, our daily life used to involve a lot of these kind of theatrical moments, and they don't anymore. So I'm trying to signal to put a little bit of poetry 
into who you are, into how you act, into the thing, into the gifts that you give, into the words that you say. You know, I mean, th- that's sort of what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, I'm also linking that one uh, to a very interesting point you make about charisma and how the most charismatic individuals are not those who inhibit their emotions. I thought that was really interesting. You said it's those who actually uh, harness their emotions in a very directed, focused way. Could you elaborate a little more on that? Well, I'm thinking of someone, I mean, I'm thinking of the, the metaphor for charisma. This is kind of this inner light. It's like this lamp that's inside that's illuminating or whatever metaphor you want, a lantern or whatever. And you, you can't literally see through a person and see that light, but it's inside that person and it animates them. It animates their eyes. It animates their mouth, their gestures, their words, their tone of voice, their body language, right? And it becomes apparent. You can feel it. And th- that comes mm. from something deep inside that person. So the kind of the person that I used as an ex- a great example of it was Malcolm X. Now, Malcolm X obviously had a great deal of anger inside of himself for all that he had suffered, you know, and, and for, for all the injustice that he saw in his daily life. You know, he was a, a, a kind of a hustler in Boston who then got put into prison for, for drug dealing, et cetera. And he spent, you know, several years in prison. And that's kind of when he turned his life around. But his form of charisma comes from this tremendous sense of injustice that he couldn't control. But he learned in public speaking that if you just ranted and got angry and just spewed all of your emotions out there, it wouldn't be effective. What was effective for him, I don't know whether he came upon this naturally or whether it was conscious. I don't have knowledge of that. But his idea was that by channeling this emotion, by kind of giving it a form and giving it a degree of restraint, not very much, but just a little bit of restraint, it created this very powerful effect. The audience could sense could sense the anger, but they knew that he was struggling to control it in some way. And it kind of lit up his face and it made everything about him deeply, deeply appeal- appealing. The, the original per- origin of charisma goes back to Moses. Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai. He sees God. God gives him the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down from the mountain, people are looking at him. His face is like glowing. The presence of God gave him this glowing sense. It wasn't literally glowing. It wasn't literally a flame, but they could see it. That's, that's the word that they use. And that's kind of the sense that a charismatic person has. So another to give a, a different side of it, like a Marilyn Monroe, whose charisma came from a great deal of hurt. Because a lot of charismatics, in my belief, come from broken childhoods, come from a lot of deep pain somewhere deep inside. And they have a tremendous need to connect to people, to find the love they didn't get at home through their connection to other people. Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe was an orphan who you know, had a lot of abuse in her early childhood. And when she was in front of the camera, you could sense that she was literally kind of making love with the camera. She so deeply wanted your attention, your affection, your approval of her, that it just animated everything about her and gave her this kind of sense of charisma. So I, 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 that's sort of you know, how my view of it. So you learn, to, you learn to channel that. You, you don't just, she just, just went like, you know, 
doing whatever in front of the camera. She knew in a professional, in a craft way, how to use that energy and kind of channel it. So it's like if you can see a river that's really wide and flowing with a lot of power. You're able to kind of take that river and make it more ordered and restrained. So instead of being all over the place, it kind of goes like this. It has a lot of power and energy and force. And by the by the, your ability to kind of restrain it to some degree. Yeah, no, I found your description of charisma really powerful. And it just got me thinking about this other one that uh, seems related to me. And that's the one where you say, any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. Now, this you say this multiple times throughout in different ways that, you know, being uh, trying to be nice. You have another one called like, don't be so nice or something like that. Can you elaborate a little more on what you mean by that? Well, it's a quote from from Machiavelli um, directly, that particular thing about, you know, if you're nice all the time, if you're too good all the time, you'll get in a lot of trouble, etc. The idea is that there are moments in life where you have to learn to let go of your kind of perpetual, pleasant demeanor, and you have to learn how to be a little bit tough and a little bit resilient and be able to play some of that hardball game that goes on in life. Now, I had a chat recently um, with people when we were talking politics, we were talking about what's going on with the Democrats and the Republicans, and a lot of the frustration that a lot of us feel who happen to be more on the de- on the side of the Democrats with how little anything is happening, how slow things are. And I brought up that chapter that you mentioned, that passage you mentioned, the daily laws about stop being so nice. And what I said was, you're dealing with an opponent, the Republicans, who have that kind of idea where they're going to obstruct no matter what, right? And they're going to bend the rules however they can. To, their, their obsession is with power. It's not with getting anything done. It's with maintaining their power, right? And look mm-hmm. at the tactics that they have used in the last 12 years or so, going back to Obama, where they obstructed every single thing that he did with a very conscious purpose. And Mitch McConnell said, this is what I'm going to do. And then look at the thing that happened with Merrick Garland, where they wouldn't nominate him, wouldn't you know, put him up for nomination for the Supreme Court. They're constantly bending the rules. They're playing a very Machiavellian game. And the Democrats, they're as if they're playing in the 19th century. You know, Obama said, when they go low, we go high kind of thing. They believe in let's follow the norms. Let's not, you know, let's, let's be nice. Let's not play the game like they do and look where they're at the position they're in you know they're getting it's like a chess mm-hmm. game where they're they're what you know what they're getting what's called forget the word in chess where you're pushed where no matter where you move you're in trouble nothing will work i think it's called strategic crush any move that you make mm-hmm. is going to end up something bad will happen they're controlling everything from voting rights on and on down the line they're creating permanent minority power my point is The Democrats need to learn how to not be so nice. They need how to play some of that game back. It's not that you give completely your morals away. It's not that you go completely down to their level. But when it comes to simple things like straining to get rid of the filibuster, when it comes down to maybe gerrymandering yourself in a state like New York to kind of um, Mm -hmm. neutralize what they're doing in the state of Texas, do it for God's sake, you know? So to me, that's an example a real life example where sometimes you have to let go of your ideals and you have to be willing 
to play and understand what the other side is doing. Yeah, and that that one seems to dovetail with your mixed harshness and kindness. Uh, Keep them in suspense. So um, how how would the suspense part apply to the Democrats? Well, I don't think it really applies. You need to keep Republicans more in suspense? Okay, okay. That's it. Doesn't have to. <laughs> I'm just wondering. Well, I'm not sure. That was more of a, a seduction tactic than anything else. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm talking about how, like in, in Napoleon Bonaparte, mm. he as a as a leader and a motivator, he would learn to sometimes with the same lieutenant, he would criticize them harshly, maybe even go a little too far in, in, in blaming them for something, mm. and then the next day, he, or a week later, he'd be incredibly kind to them and say, you know, compliment them for something that they didn't give them a reward. And that mix of criticizing and then being very kind has a very powerful effect on human psychology, kind of makes you confused. And it makes you want to please that person on a higher level. And it's kind of uh, something that people use to kind of motivate the troops, if you will. I don't think it really applies. I'm not sure I'd have to think about it more deeply. To the scenario I was just painting between the Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, people are always expecting to me be me, you know, being my normal agreeable self. That when the second that I'm not, it kind of like it's it 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 shocks people, you know, and and then I feel a bit like an asshole, you know, just even if I'm just not being completely agreeable. So that's something I think a lot of agreeable people need to kind of deal with to realize some of your walls here. I have that kind of issue i don't know if to say it a problem not where i want to please people a little too much and and be agreeable mm-hmm. but what it's a matter of when it's as as a public pers- person who you are very friendly and very agreeable and very open on your podcast you don't want to change that that's mm-hmm. who you are it's going to look weird but in actions in behavior where you learn to set boundaries with people who are doing things that that you find either offensive or not productive or not working with the team you learn to, 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 to create boundaries. If there's someone on your team who's not performing the way you want, you have to sometimes be a little bit harsh with them. You have to you know, tell them what you're really yeah. thinking and maybe even take action to make it clear to them that their job is in jeopardy. But your public persona, you shouldn't be mixing that up because that would be too confusing and it's not who you are. But I know a lot of people, I'm, I, I'm consulting right now with a gentleman who runs a very large company. And his problem is he doesn't know how to be hard with people. He doesn't know how to be tough, and yeah. sometimes it's necessary. And he ha- I have to help him. He has to channel me kind of telling him in a sort of Cyrano de Bergerac way, you know, how you have to behave with some people, how you have to set limits to them, how you have, to- you can't be so nice and run a very large company. You know, you can't always be so nice. So, I think there are a lot of people who do have that problem, and I'd include myself in that group. Yeah, you know, we're just seeing reality of ourselves as clearly as possible there and being honest about it. So, yeah. Well, coming to terms with our dark side, this is a huge, huge theme of your work, and I think it's so important. So, what is the primary law of human nature? Well, the primary law of human nature is that we want to deny that we have human nature. So, Mm. I discuss in the book sort of 16, 18 facets of human nature that can have a negative aspect to it, but that can be turned around and have a very positive aspect. So if you look at how we evolved hundreds of thousands of years ago, 
Certain forms of behavior are ingrained in our nature as a primate, but some things emerged in our years spent as hunter-gatherers, etc., and they're not really applicable to the world that we live in. So there are aspects of our nature that can get us in trouble that are not very social, that don't really work very well. And, you know, I talk about our irrationality. I talk about our narcissism, our self-absorption. I talk about our propensity to envy, which is something that chimpanzees have. Um, I talk about um, our grandiosity. Give us just a taste of success and we start becoming grandiose. I talk about our aggressive impulses, our passive aggressive impulses, our conformity, on and on and on. And what is it that you asked me the primary law of human nature? Well, the primary law of human nature is to deny that I have anything as if I, Robert Greene, could be the exception in that rule. Oh, it's he that's narcissistic. Oh, she's the one that's aggressive or passive aggressive. Oh, they're feeling envy. We never want to admit that we have these qualities, that we have aggressive impulses, that we can be passive aggressive, that we can be extremely self-absorbed. And when I was writing the book, it was kind of a shock for me as I wrote the chapters, the ones I've just elucidated to you. I go, wow, Robert, you're actually more self-absorbed than I thought, than I generally think of myself. You're actually quite narcissistic in some ways. You have these qualities that you're describing, right? And so mm, yeah. people, we have this- I agree. In, you are, Robert. Have, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, jo- I'm joking. You said, you no, said, no, you no. said right, and I was- uh, yeah. That's right. I led myself over to a thing. Um, <laughs> So we're deeply invested in this kind of ideal image that we have of ourselves, right? So it's always the, and I'm trying to say the key to to being a human being is to be self-aware and to be aware that you have these problems. Yes, there are other people who are more narcissistic than you are. Yes, there are people who are more envious and grandiose of always, of course. But we all come from the same origins the same fabric that created every human around the planet, we share. So it would be impossible, it would be a contradiction to say somehow we're exempted from something so deeply ingrained in our nature, something that's wired into our brains. Envy is deeply, deeply wired into how our brains operate by comparing bits of information. So naturally, we compare ourselves to other people as a social animal, right? And we all continually, in the course of a day, feel envy towards others. We're just not honest about it. So that's the primary law of human nature. Yeah, and relatedly, I thought this one was really interesting when you're talking about the importance of confronting your dark side. You said, depression and anxiety come from not being your complete self, from always playing a role. It requires great energy to keep this dark side at bay, but at times unpleasant behavior leaks out as a way to release the inner tension. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, the idea is that, you know, when you're a child, the metaphor I use is kind of like a round ball, right, in three dimensions. Mm. And when you were mm. a child, you were a complete person. That round ball was very clear. You had a sweet, angelic side. You were very nice and lovable to your parents. But you also had a side where you could be very aggressive, where you could pull your sister's hair, where you could scream nasty thoughts. You didn't have as, as much self-control as you, you, you gain later on in life, right? You were a complete human being, right? You expressed every aspect of who you were, like this round ball. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is you get older, people start telling you, you can't behave like that, Robert. 
You have to be nicer. You can't say those kinds of things to people. You can't pull your sister's hair. You can't throw things at people. You have to be nicer. You have to be accommodating. You have to fit in with the group. And slowly, those parts of ourselves that are deeply, deeply embedded in our nature, some of which are naturally don't function on the social role, they get cut off. And so you become this kind of moon where there's only the bright side that people see, then the dark side is kind of hidden. And it gets repressed and repressed and pushed down, right? And you're in complete denial that you have these feelings, that you have these aggressive impulses, that you have these dark desires. And if you examine any of your dreams, you will see leaking out continually these kind of dark desires that none of us want to really discuss, right? Mm -hmm. A point can be reached later on in life. And we see that in, in public characters. We can see it in ourselves. But that dark side that's been repressed, it's almost like the child, the dark child in you that you don't want to admit exists. And sometimes later in life, it comes screaming out of you and you're not even aware of it. And it causes behavior that to you might even seem, well, that wasn't really me. I don't know where that came from. Where suddenly you say something a little bit mean or you take an action, you hurt your 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 partner by having an affair with someone or you do something that you don't know where it came from. It's almost like you feel afterwards as if somebody else inhabited your body, right? I mean, that's an extreme example, but it yeah. comes out in, in, in day-to-day affairs on a more banal level, right? In just sort of dark emotions mm-hmm. that you sense in you. It leaks out and it causes sometimes very weird behavior. And so what I'm telling you is not to become that child because You can't be completely always expressing how you feel, right? That's part of being a social human is that we learn to kind of mold our behavior. But to recognize that unwanted child in you, that person that you've repressed, to say hello to it, to kind of welcome it, to even kind of embrace it in a way and say, it's a part of me. Mm. Now, how can I use that part of me instead of denying it? Can I channel it into something productive? Can I use my anger and aggressive impulses towards writing books, which is something I use, or to creating some kind of into just cause? You know, I feel angry and upset, and I'm yelling at people. Maybe I can channel that into something productive. And I give plenty of examples in that chapter of how you can do that, and very famous, successful people who manage to channel that dark energy, their competitive instincts, or whatever it is. But the first step is to acknowledge that kind of ugly child that you don't want to see in yourself, not ugly, but unwanted, and to accept it and to find a way to maybe use it in a productive way, that energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, And I really love this phrase. You said mit Freude, you know, as a a contrast to schadenfreude. Can you, I've, never, I've never heard of that before. That's really cool. So tell, tell our listeners well, a little bit about Freud what Mitt Freud is. Well, comes from, Friedrich Nietzsche kind of coined the expression. So schadenfreude, Freude means joy or pleasure in German, and schaden means kind of pain. So it literally means finding joy in other people's pain, not in your own pain, mm. but in other people's pain. And that's sort of what schadenfreude is to some degree. You hear news mm. of your friend who got fired or something bad happened to them. And deep down inside, you feel a little bit of gloating, you know, like, ha, 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 right? They're mm-hmm. human after all. Maybe I'm not so bad. Yeah. Maybe they're not so great. That's schadenfreude. And Nietzsche mm-hmm. found that kind of 
aspect of human nature, deeply petty and deeply kind of base. And he had this ideal of something more kind of noble. And the nobility part of it would be mitfreude. And mit means in German with. So it means with the joy. And how he defined it is when other people have news that is good, instead of feeling envious or upset, you feel joy with them. You experience their good news, their good fortune with joy. The flip side would be, I don't know what expression I could come up with in German, but if I thought about it, I could. Where if something bad happens to someone, you don't gloat, you feel their pain. You know, I, I'd have to figure out what that word would be. Mitschada, maybe. <laughs> you feel their pain with them. <laughs> yeah, you don't gloat. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, you, fit, you feel their yeah. pain with them, right? He wanted this kind of sense where empathy. <laughs> if somebody has something great happen to them, you're not your you're normal, mm -hmm. up, and it's all human. It's I go through it myself. Is to feel why did it happen to them? Why couldn't it have been me? Maybe they don't deserve that good thing that happened to them. Maybe they're not as great as people think they are. To go the opposite direction and to literally force yourself and to make it a habit of that's wonderful. And not to just to not just to fool yourself, but to literally feel inside of yourself joy at their good fortune, to experience it with them, right? And in the process of doing that, mm -hmm. they will sense it, and they will feel incredibly grateful because it's not it's rare to have someone truly participate in your your good in your good fortune, etc. But also, it'll make you feel a lot better about yourself. You know, you'll feel. Because those kind of petty instincts that we have, which are natural, we don't like indulging in them. They, they, make, they don't make us feel very good. But you can practice these other habits, which I think Mitfreud is part of. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just love like seeing the potential in someone they, they, they don't see in themselves. You know, I think that, that might be related to that, that emotion, you know, especially if it's like a student, a student or something. And I'm like, you know what? You really could do this. Yeah, yeah. That's an amazing thing, and I'm sure you know all about that more than I do. But like the Pygmalion effect that they've studied in mm. in students, yeah. where great studies done back in the 60s and 70s, where a teacher, if they simply felt, without ever expressing it, that their students were good students deep down, and they were all deserving to go to college or university, the grades of those students would suddenly rise. Right. They never it was never spoken, but the mm -hmm. feeling that the teacher felt that they were worthwhile and something good would happen to them. The students would feel that from the teacher in a nonverbal way. It would come, you know, it would pass yeah. through them and they would try harder and they would feel better about themselves. There's a whole realm of human psychology that involves these kind of nonverbal interactions where how you feel about another person it translates to them in a way that they're not even aware of and alters their behavior which in turn alters your behavior. I wish somebody would go into that in a more in a deep level and kind of expose it because to me it's fascinating to me it's the new frontier of human psychology, you know, and I, you know, keeping notes about these things and different phenomena that I think could go into it. But for instance, one psychologist had this example mm -hmm. where a woman was dealing with a very kind of angry abusive boss and she didn't know what the hell anything she did he 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 just got angry at. She went to a therapist, and the therapist said, next time, just go in there and think good thoughts about him. Maybe he's, he's like this because of something going on in his life that he can't control. 
have a little bit of empathy and go mm-hmm. in there and go into the, in the interaction and go, I don't feel resentful or angry. I sympathize. I feel a little bit sorry for you. And I actually like you. But don't say it. Just feel it. She went in there. And suddenly he was so put, he didn't know how to react because it was so different, just her body language. And he kind of melted and he kind of changed his behavior. So these are things that are similar to the Pygmalion effect, to the Mitfreude, if you will. I'm doing it right now towards you. I'm, I want to see if it affects you at all. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. I'm very proud okay, of you. Well, I'm doing it back amazing you, books. Okay. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. So I really like the integration of the shadow. That's, that's you know, we're, you know we're, we're reaching the end of our interview today, and I, there's no better place than the ho- very high level of integration, right? It takes so, so much work to do then. that. Oh no! Well, oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. But we're as yeah. we're pre, as we're approaching the the, the mountain, the extending the yeah. mountain uh, okay. integration at a high level seems to be um, up there. And you know, you talk about absorb yourself in your work, not your ego, and that requires a really high level of integration. You know, because the ego is constantly screaming at us, right? So, do you have some tips or ideas on how how we can work on that integration? Well, it's a feeling of. Whether you, you're turning inward or whether you're turning outward. I mean, obviously, there, there's going to be gradations of that. We're not always completely turning or inward. But the degree to which you can get outside of yourself and make that inward pull towards your ego, towards your insecurities, towards your own continual um, recurring thoughts, and get outside of yourself and put yourself into your work fully, and engage with it as if it's something outside of you. And to the degree that you're able to get outside of yourself and engage completely with other people as a reality that has nothing to do with you, they have their own reality, their own experience. You know, as you're able to do that with people in all sorts of situations, to me, that's that's the highest form of therapy that you can have, right? Where you're, and mm-hmm. so much of the dynamic that's taking over us in the 21st century is that inward turning is getting deeper and deeper and stronger and stronger, that pull, right? And I talk about in my new book, Mm -hmm. which we may get to or not, um, I talk about how in the ancient world, in the pagan world, if you will, the sense, the greatest feeling that a person had was to be possessed by something outside of them. That was what was kind Mm -hmm. of ecstasy. That was what religion was. That was what the divine was. It was being possessed by some force beyond you, whether that was love and Aphrodite, whether that was clear thinking and Athena, just to use the Greek examples, etc. So back in those, in our earlier years, people were much more vulnerable. And are you familiar with, with the work, um, The Secular Age by Charles Taylor? I'm actually not, no, no. Oh, it's a fascinating book. It's really interesting. He kind of, is uh, trying to show the roots of of where our how our, we evolved into a completely secular society, and his the word he uses is permeability. So in the past, people were much more permeable to outside influences. It was also kind of a frightening thing as well, right? Where you were much more open to what other people said to their world, to the natural forces around you, and as we've evolved, we've become more and more closed. We want to control that. We want to retreat to our inner citadel. So, you know what, Scott? I've kind of forgotten the original question. Maybe it's because that title, Anxious, is, is staring me in the face. What was your original question? 
<laughs> well, it's so prominent, it's and as somebody as somebody who suffers from anxiety, you know, it's like, whoa, anxious. I don't know if I want to read that book. It's making me anxious. Maybe that's part of the market. It's right under our. It's right under our books. Yeah. I really should remove that. I'm gonna. This will what be the last episode question? I ever have. That there. Okay. My original question was how Tenny tips for integrating the two. Uh, but integrating the dark side with our our really uh, healthy motivations for work, not our egoistic oh, motivations, see. but our I see. the kind that we we really really should have. Yeah. Well, you know, so if you're feeling like you have a lot of aggressive impulses, that you're a very ambitious person, you could channel that into hurting other mm-hmm. people, into pushing them around, into getting mm-hmm. a position of power in which you control them and you intimidate them and you feed your own ego. And I'm saying. Take that, that energy, because the dark side contains more energy, I'm afraid, than the light side, because it's so repressed, because it has this kind of primal animal aspect of it. It contains a lot of energy and a lot of creative energy. You know, all of some of our best artists that we appreciate know how to channel that dark side and know how to express it to some degree. You know, like I was talking earlier about Malcolm X, his ability to express mm. the dark side of how African-Americans were feeling was a great part of his charisma, that he could express what other people were feeling but would never dare to say, right? That's one way of channeling mm. your dark side, right? And, and instead of yeah. instead of like pushing people around, just kind of creating something in your work, in your business or whatever, that's superior you know, to put all that ambition and drive and energy into creating something very productive and beautiful and getting outside of yourself and channeling that energy into, instead of inward into something outward, a project or other people. I think that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. So tell me about your new book, uh, your upcoming book, The Law of the Sublime. Is that still the working title of it? It is the working title. And it's. I think there's a lot of similarity to your book, which I'm very excited to get a copy of. But, uh, you know, what I'm trying to explain in in The Sublime is I'm trying to resurrect a concept that was very popular in the late 18th century and the 19th century. The sublime has become a word that doesn't have much meaning anymore or is used, you know, that was a sublime meal that we had, or it's used by people in the art world in a very kind of cloistered way that that doesn't have much relevance to our day-to-day life and i'm trying to bring it back down to earth and the the kind of the metaphor that i use is that to be a human means to live inside of a kind of a circle and that circle is these are the behaviors these are the codes and conventions that being a sociable human being we have to abide by and every culture has that limiting circle So they had it in ancient Egypt. It isn't the same as what we have now. The codes have changed. What behavior is allowed has changed, but the circle remains the same, right? And it's like, it's not just how we're supposed to behave, but it's certain thoughts that we have. This is how our culture ingrains in us certain ways of thinking, certain values, certain opinions. And what lies beyond that circle, just on the other side, to me, is what I define as the realm of the sublime. Because by our nature, we humans don't like limits. We want to explore things. We're fascinated by what is taboo or what is not, what is not where we're supposed to go. And so 
that realm of thoughts and feelings and emotions and experiences that go beyond that limited circle, they fascinate us because they represent a realm of thinking and acting that is freer, that isn't so limited. And it's something deep down inside. It's kind of a way of transcending that circle, you know, to use the word on your title there. And so the ultimate, so the word sublime from the Latin means up to the threshold. Limen meaning the, mm. is the Latin word for a threshold. So up to the limit, up to the threshold. It's like a door that you're coming up to its threshold and you're looking at the other side. And the ultimate form of looking on the other side in which the word sublime was originally associated with is death itself. Death is the ultimate limit, right? So to peer through that door and to experience yeah. death in some way while you're still alive is the ultimate sublime experience. So if you've ever read the literature on people who've had near-death experiences, it totally transforms them. They're never the same. I had, on a mm -hmm. minor scale, my own near-death experience three years ago when I came very close to dying and I was in a coma. You know, so I have I understand that now in a very real yeah. visceral level, right? So I describing yeah. in the book like 15 different facets of that sublime experience. I talk about the cosmos and understanding the insanity of how this universe even evolved and what science reveals to us and how just knowing that should explode your everyday experience. I talk about evolution of life and how the fact that Scott Barry Kaufman and Robert Greene are now communicating through this form as two human beings in 2021 is the most outrageous, outlandish, uh, the, uh, you know, the odds against this happening are so astronomical, but how often do I think of that? And do we think of that? And I go through the link, the causal link, going back to the first moment that life sparked, which was against the odds, mm. and all the bottlenecks in evolution, which could have made things go completely differently, so that human beings would have never evolved, such as the extinction of the dinosaurs mm. by a freak meteor that hit our planet such as how humans nearly went extinct 80,000 years ago, on and on and on. Your parents meeting, how unlikely that was. Multiply that by 70,000 generations of other 70,000 unlikely meetings. So you being Scott Barry Kaufman is almost, too, is almost incomprehensible that you even exist as you are, right? So that's a sublime thought mm -hmm. to go into just really the reality of our existing in this world as it is, as we look at it today. And then I, I go into, as I said, pagan religions. I go into childhood and, and how to recreate childhood mm -hmm. feelings because children are very susceptible to the sublime, how the human brain is a sublime instrument, on and on, these different facets mm -hmm. that are like little doors around that circle that open up into worlds that we don't really think about, but that are incredibly awe-inspiring and give us a taste of what Maslow called peak experiences. And the final thing I'll say about the book is I'm trying not to make it uh, just an academic discourse on the sublime. The point of it is I want this to be a part of your daily reality. So the optimal world is experience. I want this to be a part of your experience, not in an intellectual way, but in an emotional way. And so a lot of the book is about almost exercises and ways you can can access this sublimity in your daily consciousness. And now I'll shut up. 
<laughs> no, no, that's beautiful. You're cracking me up. That's beautiful. I, I actually, I can't, I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to read the book. I know, it, I'll know, I know, I'll learn a lot from it. Um, as you'll read in Transcend, uh, Maslow, towards the end of his life, he had a heart attack a couple years before he eventually had his fatal heart attack, and he called it uh, those last couple years of his life the post mortem life. And he said, if everyone could have a post mortem life where they, they have a near death kind of death kind of experience and then continue to live that would that then they could access higher levels of transcendence than they ever known imaginable and is, is another it, thing that, that i think yeah go on. yeah is that yeah. expressed in a book in a particular book that i should read it's in my book because it, it's oh. transcribed from lectures he gave towards the end okay, of his life okay, okay, so okay. he this is unpublished unpublished stuff oh i went through all of his oh how exciting his, his oh, personal exciting. diaries his personal diaries, his and and also another idea a lot of people are not aware of that I think you'll really deeply resonate with is his idea of he's the plateau experience. He said, um, and he realized during this postmortem life that the peak experience is not where it's at. <laughs> he said it's the plateau experience. It's like lounging in heaven but not getting so excited about it, seeing the miraculous in the everyday. He said, you know what? That's better than than the peaks I've been talking about before. Well, he he describes that in his yeah. book Peak Experiences in that book itself, where he contrasts the plateau with the peak experience. And he kind of, I think if I remember correctly, he kind of compares it to like a meditative state that Zen Buddhists would have, where they kind of mm. are able to mm. leave that, that kind of peak experience is on the sort of level plane throughout their life and they experience it day by day to day. Yeah, I mean, I've been writing about how the sublime is in our everyday life. You don't have to, the weird thing is, Scott, when I originally decided to write the book, which was 15 years ago, I had wanted to write this book. Mm-hmm. I had this image in my mm-hmm. mind that I would be jetting all parts of the, around the planet, having these sublime experiences. Mm-hmm. I would go to Tierra del Fuego and Antarctica. I would swim with dolphins in the Caribbean. I would have, and then I had my, you know, then I finally I got sidetracked by other projects. And now after mm-hmm. my own near-death experience, I decided I'm going to write the book on sublime. But now, because of my physical limitations, I can't fly anywhere. I can barely even take a walk outside my front door. So I can't do what I originally did. So I personally have to find the sublime in order to write about it in just looking out my window and just going, you know, in my car and seeing certain things, just interacting with my girlfriend or my cat. You know, I have to suck it out of every flower that comes in my way, get that nectar in the smallest things because it's the only avenue I have. And so in writing the book, I'm going to make it clear to the reader that you don't have to go climb Mount Everest, literally to have a peak experience. It's there around you and everything that surrounds you. I love that. And, you know, just to conclude, your writings really do um, instill this sense of wonder and peak experience in the reader. So um, I hope you writing the books can, can help give you that experience as well from time to time. It does. Thank you so much, Robert, for being going. Oh, good. No, no, that's it. Good, good. Thanks, Robert, for being on the podcast today. It is so great to chat with you again, and good yeah. luck on your new book. Yeah, and please send me the uh, the link to send me the book and send me the link to Anxious because I I'm going to have to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> At least I'm going to put it on my bookshelf. You got it for my podcast, and I'm going to have everybody who have to it. look at that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. I'll send you both both books. Okay. Transcend and anxious. No, okay. thanks, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you very much, Scott. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.